Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today... All right, Canadians in Melbourne, I'll be speaking with Debbie Brennan from Radical Women, Bishop George Browning speaking about Palestine and Israel, Kathy Kelly back home again from Afghanistan, elections in Zimbabwe and human rights in the Philippines with Peter Murphy and the co-founder of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin. Why are Saudi Arabia and Iran treated differently by the U.S.? and Israel. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, let's hear what his week has been. A week, Jane, listener, when in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, just when Her Most Gracious Majesty's big supremo Therese may not last, was looking for all the help she could get, along came Donald, the self-acclaimed consistent genius, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the Poor, and on regarding himself as a genius, he is consistent, who chastised her for not taking his genius advice on Brexit, and commenting diplomatically, he thought his friend Boris would make a great big supremo, great. And after attacking her and supporting her inter-party opponent, Donald said they had a great relationship, and the whole country just loved him, which he probably realised after seeing thousands and thousands of people on the streets waving banners with his inflated head on them. Although when I say seeing, he didn't actually see because they kept him away from them, probably because the government knew that people would want to mob their hero. Although he did wave to his fans lined up on the fringes of one of his numerous golf resorts, this one in Scotland, where he spent the weekend after having a chat with Her Most Gracious Majesty, (laughs) and wouldn't that have been a meeting of the minds? Donald's genius mind obviously doesn't run to protocol, which is very important in Her Most Gracious Majesty's world, like two of the royal incubators married to the princes we all love, sitting in the searing sun at Wimbledon with their hats in their hands, because protocol decrees you don't wear a hat in the royal box. Better melanoma than ignoring protocol. Earlier in the week, Donald had attacked his NATO train killer cohorts for not spending nearly enough on US of train killer merchants of death merchandise. And when you give trillions to our merchants of death great great. You must find someone, anyone, to use them on so you can give trillions more to our merchants of death. And who's the threat to Europe and the US of? We must use your merchandise to train kill, they asked. We'll see, we'll see. Who knows? Donald's genius then saw and then knew. All of you, all of you are foes of the US of, especially Germany. So you want us to give your merchants of death trillions so we can attack each other? We'll see, we'll see, wait and see. Donald then said he had got along swimmingly with all of them, especially his close friend Angela, as he had got along swimmingly with his very close friend Therese, and after his consultancy golfing and protocol tour of Her Most Gracious Gracious Majesty's home, he headed to Helsinki to meet another close friend, Vladimir Putting Better Than Donald. Helsinki, leaving all those he had got along so swimmingly with, feeling they had just sunk into hell. 
And it was here Donald's powers of uniting opposites, his genius for resolving differences, was highlighted yet again. His glowing praise of Vladimir, putting better than Donald, managed to unite both sides of both houses of the US of Congress, screaming that he had been out-putted before he even got to the first hole. Although we do need to ask why the United Houses thought evil Russia needed to be put or putted in its place. Because it was communist and atheistic and hated the dear baby Jesus. Uh, but now it's capitalist just like you. Of course, of course, we know. And that's the problem. Uh, so it's evil because it's capitalist? Obviously. Earlier, before eulogising his new close friend Vladimir, Donald had berated Germany for buying gas from capitalist Russia and not from capitalist US of. But then Donald is nothing if not consistent. Explaining in part why train killer NATO has to bomb the proverbial out of Germany, unless the weapons of mass destruction they use, heaven forbid, are Russian, which would mean the US of has to bomb the proverbial out of all of them, while getting along swimmingly with them. Still, over in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, last week we were shocked to learn via the christening of the latest little hungry mouth of Her Most Gracious Majesty's extended lot, living off the charity of the taxpayers, just how difficult it is trying to survive on public charity, that the kid would wear the, the quote, same frilly cream gown his siblings wore for their introduction to Jesus, a replica of one worn by Her Most Gracious Majesty Queen Victoria's daughter in 1841. In other words, they can't even afford a new gown the little kid have to keep recycling. Well, then it got worse. At the little post-christening cup of tea gathering, they were forced to serve bits of the kid's parents' wedding cake. Seven-year-old cake! God, even I could afford the occasional fresh cake! Our hearts go out to them, because as we know here in Troubadouazi, it is pretty tough trying to survive on the dole. At least they live in public housing. They'd be even more destitute if they had to pay rent from their doll on their little castles and palaces where they spend shivering nights chewing on stale cake while stitching and patching their tattered clothing. On the dramatic Thai rescue, I feel the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin captured how we all felt, captured the guts of the story and spoke for all of us with its P1 headline, World's Prayers Answered. Forget the heroes and organisers who pulled it off. They had nothing to do with it other than being God's little helpers, hands, the dear baby Jesus' tools. It was prayer. The Whopping Sin didn't mention which of the sundry gods, or non-gods like Buddha, although that probably rules Buddha out, which of the sundry gods the world implored answered the world's prayers. Although Lord Rupert himself, an exemplar of Christianity, and actually when we think about it he probably is, doubtless assumed we'd know it was our God, and none of that false lot. Given it was prayer and not the local and international heroes, we can assume, based on Lord Rupert's logic, that prayers didn't work for the poor bloke who died during the rescue attempt, or his death was God's will. Or maybe in his case they were praying to the wrong God. God aside, I don't think we need you or me to point out what a remarkable and wonderful achievement it was. As an aside, a friend who visits that area regularly tells me one of the boys was from Myanmar and those families cannot receive citizenship and associated benefits and remain stateless but are allowed a work permit. And this morning's news tells us two of them fall into that category and Thailand is considering giving them citizenship status. 
bigger them. So perhaps all those stateless Myanmar refugees might consider undertaking a bit of cave exploration. Back here, two reports this week have excited the fossils in the caring business class party. Well, that's pretty well all of them, who have declared they have been right all along, and no one could dispute that. Right, that we can't afford to save the planet, because that would kill our coal industry. And although the reports both say evil destroying jobs and growth renewable energy must be the answer and must take over by about 2225, or roughly two centuries after the end of the world, the fossils somehow managed to miss that bit of the reports. And even though the author of the first report says, no, it does not endorse coal, they've managed not to hear that bit. And it must be serious because these believers in small government and market forces insist the public purse must finance new fossils to accelerate the end of the world. But why not leave it to the market, to the great corporates you so adore? Because, you know, like, they won't, you know, touch it with a, like, you know, barge pole. And a brief week that was sport report. In football, for two weeks in a row, a Carlton player has come up with a heart condition. At least they could rule out stress over the closeness of the scores. Told you it was brief. Yesterday, as Donald was marauding the world, attempting to bully it into buying more and more US of merchants of death, weapons of mass destruction, and our local fossils who believe in small government and leaving the business of making money to the private sector, were urging the government to finance, finance lots of coal, 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 good, clean coal fossil power stations. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin decreed the most important news on this overheated planet was... Walk for the brave. These top, uh, sorry, cops and their good, good, good union undertaking a walk, quote, to help thousands of former officers with mental health problems. And I thought the mere fact someone wants to be a copper indicates a mental health problem up front. Treat them as they walk in the door. So finally, we can assume their problems stem from not getting enough of why they joined up. Shooting people, tasering, spraying, battening, kicking, bashing, framing, especially long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden work in an iron, black armband threats to public order. All the fun, fun, fun jobs that compensate for the boredom down at the local cop shop. I'm sure we'll all be donating to that cause. Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy and good news. He's back on deck for City Limits tomorrow. He's been missing for a couple of weeks with a bit of a cold, which not good when you have an hour-long program when you've got a, a barking cough. But that's all over. He'll be back tomorrow as 9 for City Limits. This Friday, two alt-right activists will be in Melbourne to spread their hatred of immigration, multiculturalism, support for homophobia and generally seek to be as obnoxious as they can. The anti-fascist movement will also be there to demonstrate against their presence here in Australia and Debbie Brennan from Radical Women is encouraging listeners to show their disapproval of these two people. First Debbie, who are they? To understand who Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux are and why they're coming out here, I find it easiest to understand that by seeing them as part of a parade of far-right personalities. Like we had Milo Yiannopoulos in December, we now have Southern and Molyneux. We're going to have Nigel Farage from 
the United Kingdom coming out in September. Milo apparently is coming back later this year, and then, of course, we're going to have Donald Trump. So it seems that there's a, a real concerted effort to have these people coming out to Australia. We're, we're a bit barraged by them, but their purpose being to cohere the far right in Australia. So when we look at what Southern and Malinu are saying, for example, it's really a rehash of Milo Yiannopoulos. And in listening to them or reading their their statements, you can hear the likes of Corey Bernardi and Pauline Hansen and Bettina Arndt and David Leinhelm. They're the same ideologues. So that's really what um, Southern and Molyneux are about. Have they been stopped from going to any countries? Southern was stopped from getting into the UK, but that is the only incident that I know. They had a bit of trouble getting into Australia. Mind you, they're both here now, but I think, though, to to address that question, like um, Radical Women, for example, opposes the state actually exercising that power to ban anybody from coming in, even the likes of a Southern or a Molyneux or a Milo Yiannopoulos, because we actually, it's quite dangerous actually for the state to be using its powers to ban people, but because of course they they would ban the likes of us coming in as well. So it's really up to us on the ground to be letting this ilk know the consequences of coming in with their toxic ideas. Just give us an idea of what they've been up to in the last little while. Yes, well, both of them, as you said, they're, they're from Canada. They're both YouTubers. They both come out of the far-right movement over there, and they both are doing their tours just like Milo Yiannopoulos has done. They're both very much against multiculturalism. They'll be talking in Australia about why multiculturalism is so undesirable and basically trying to help the far right here save Australia from it. Lauren Southern herself has come out in uh, defense of white South African farmers who she says are victims of a genocide. Southern has also been connected with what's called the identitarians in Europe. Basically, they're white nationalists who call for closed borders. And in working with them um, not too long ago, she was part of blockading a, an NGO refugee ship from bringing refugees into Europe from northern Africa. So they're both very much going to be pandering to the xenophobia and the, and the racism that is unfortunately alive and well here. They're both also 
into family values and men's rights and to be listening to the both of them you would be hearing things like fatherless families i.e. single mother households endangered children it just raises children who are narcissistic and grow up to be annoying social justice warriors those are the words of Lauren Southern but they also are those children who grow up in these single mother households uh, tend to commit suicide more are poorly educated they become promiscuous they get into substance abuse etc etc so they just fling around these amazing claims and statistics to build that and again in listening to that I keep hearing Pauline Hansen again they talk about homosexuality as basically being debauched Molyneux goes on to say that single motherhood is the single biggest predictor of criminality of children and so on and so forth Molyneux who calls himself a um, a philosopher he does a lot of long YouTubes and philosophizes and one of the things that he philosophizes about is what he calls race reality and what that boils down to is that he is churning up something that science has debunked quite some time ago which is the idea of the IQ and so he actually goes into the the claim that black people around the world have low IQ so that's harkening back to the 19th and 20th centuries that tool of white supremacism that whole IQ idea and of course we know that that IQ idea you know the size of the brain and how you perform on IQ tests was very much used by Nazis so that's rather sinister to know that uh that's something that he's into and they will both be well he will be talking about while he addresses their audiences do we know how widely they're going to travel in australia i just have seen that they're like they're going to perth they're going to brisbane i believe sydney as well as melbourne i'm not aware of places other than that so the idea seems to be the same as when Milo Yiannopoulos was here just go to as many cities as you can and of course there's no venue yes no no i think that's going to be a replay of what happened when Milo Yiannopoulos was out here last december they'll keep it under wraps there is organizing of course to protest against them in Melbourne once the venue is publicized but that could be anywhere up to an hour before the event takes place because of course they will be doing everything in their power to make it as as hard as they can for people to protest but of course with Milo last year we still had a huge huge protest something that I'd like to just mention as well about the danger of these two is not only are they here to cohere a a far right movement they do deliberately appeal to neo-nazis the fact that lauren southern landon 
landed in Australia wearing her It's Okay to Be White t-shirt. That is a very specific code, a code that's very popular among neo-Nazi groups, and she is talking to neo-Nazis when she wears that shirt. I'm a bit cynical about the Milo venue last year. It was sort of pushed that it was going to be somewhere in the city, but mm. it ended up right outside the, the flats in Kensington where there's a great number of immigrant people there. And I just think, well, that, maybe that was the place they were going to go to anyway. It is a bit suspicious. It's, it was certainly provocative. Hard to tell, you know, whether that is the case. We did hear in the lead up to his event that they were actually having trouble finding a venue. There were venues that sort of chickened out. So it's possible that it may not have been on the cards from the very beginning, but whatever, whatever, what happened, happened. And again, we shall see what happens this time. I mean, my guess would be, I don't know if that same venue would be happy to have Malinu and Southern, but this is pure guesswork. There were arrests after that in December last year. Have yes. those cases gone to court yet? Yes, there were three anti-fascists from our side and three neo-Nazis. Both sides have fronted up to court. The three anti-fascists have had to appear at the magistrate's court twice. The second time was, I think, the week before last, and I believe that they will be appearing again at the end of August. And they're on serious charges, riotous behavior, assault, and the third one, I can't quite recall, but it's along those lines. It's uh, where, the, where our side is concerned. It is really something we've got to defend these defendants, because the anti-fascist defendants, because really what the police and the state are doing is that they're attempting to criminalize self-defense and the defense of a protest against the likes of neo-Nazis in Milo Yiannopoulos, because that's precisely what the three anti-fascists were doing. They were defending our protest when these neo-Nazis came into our space, threatening them with um, very heavy flagpoles as assault weapons. That is something I think we have to be very conscious of. Did they also invade the public housing flats? During the Milo Yiannopoulos event, the neo-Nazis were openly threatening the residents of those flats with the police letting them do it. But what happened later that night was that the police themselves, in their riot gear, raided the housing estates. They went inside and raided absolutely not only terrorizing, but, of course, enraging, justifiably, the residents because the police have a record of doing that to that estate over a few decades. Yes, I think the Flemington Kensington Legal Service are right onto that, aren't they? Absolutely, 
Absolutely, yes. And um, I also, there were some from the estates who were arrested as well that night, and there's been massive fundraising going on for their defence. Friday night, how are you letting people know if they want to come? People can do a couple of things. Radical Women is going to have a joint contingent with the Indigenous Social Justice Association, Freedom Socialist Party, and the Melbourne Anarchist Group. And if anybody wants to know about that, because we'll be going as a very tight, disciplined, safe contingent, uh, I think the best thing to do is email Radical Women. That's Radical Women, one word, at optusnet.com.au or Campaign Against Racism and Fascism are also organizing a protest. They're currently advertising, meeting at Federation Square at 5 p.m., but of course that can change because that is just really based on not knowing yet where the actual venue is going to be. What's the contact then for CARF? Anybody can just go to CARF's Facebook page. So just go to Campaign Against Racism and Fascism Facebook page and that will be where they'll get whatever updated information. And on that page will be a mobile phone number if people want to text that number. I don't have it offhand. Okay, Debbie, stay safe. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Well, we'll certainly do what we've done for three years and just stay very well together, watch each other's backs, and, yes, be safe. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, Jan. And that was Debbie Brennan. And just those details again, Radical Women, send them an email, radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au or CAF, Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, have a look at their webpage. Facebook page, I mean. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, their Facebook page. You're listening to 3CR. The time is 4.25. Early this morning I spoke with retired Anglican Bishop George Browning. Since 2013, the President of APAN Australia, Palestine Advocacy Network. George, before we talk about current events affecting Palestinians, could you give us some detail about your long involvement with and for Palestinians? My involvement goes back to the 1970s. I was running a theological seminary. We had the Palestinian students come to Australia for their training, so I was involved with training a number of young men who went back to run parishes in the West Bank and um, the Gaza Strip. Since then, I've been over and visited them, and that's how my involvement really began. And APAN, how did that come about for you? I I think I was in in the wrong place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time or something, but they were looking for a new president, and I went to a meeting to do with Palestinian cause in Canberra. I was set upon by members of the APAN committee at that stage and and asked what was the good reason why I couldn't become their president. So (laughs) I 
obviously agreed. Um, it's very time-consuming. I think partly what they were looking for was somebody who had a long association with Palestine, but also had a network, which, which I do, because I was the Bishop of Canberra, and I have a network with politically, church-wise, interfaith-wise, and so on, and that's, I, I hope, been a little bit helpful to APAN. And that's what APAN is, really, isn't it? A diverse group of people yeah, and organisations. People sometimes are surprised that, uh, to hear that we have a number of Jews who are members of APAN, as well as Muslims and Christians and members of all political persuasions, business, politics, unions, etc. So it's really a cross-section of society. It's a privilege, really, to preside over such a group. I think we have to begin with Israel's carrying out the biggest airstrikes on Gaza since the 2014 war. People are getting killed virtually weekly, aren't they, in Gaza? Well, they have been killed weekly for years and years and years, and most, when uh, an Israeli is uh, killed by an action of a Palestinian, it gains a lot of publicity. But the deaths of Palestinians rarely gain publicity, and they they happen on a very, very regular basis. The Israel mantra is that everything is done in order to for Israeli security but everybody would agree and I certainly do that Israel has the right to exist and it has the right to secure borders but its argument about security is really hollow in many many respects and in a sense Hamas is useful to Israel because it, 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 is, it then becomes the reason which they give for justifying outrageous incursions into Palestinian territory and uh, the latest bombing of, of Gaza by Israel has been really out of proportion. That's not to justify at all the rockets that are sent over and uh, uh, I and with everybody else wish that did not happen. But people need to understand that uh, in Gaza people are living a terrible life and uh, frustration builds up and enmity builds up and uh, if people have nothing to lose then people behave very badly and the solution is that it's not more bombing of Gaza the solution is to find uh, an opportunity to give the people of Gaza a way of life which all human beings really deserve and of course it's not only the people of Gaza it's the people of the West Bank as well and Australia's role in supporting Israel and doing very little for Palestine is well known Just look at the latest where Australia's direct aid to the Palestinian Authority by Australia has been cut. Can you talk about Australia's aid to Palestine? I guess all your listeners know that, in theory at least, the bipartisan political position of Australian politics is a two-state solution. That is to say that we support both Palestine and we support Israel, but we support both right to exist and to live in in peace and harmony with with one another and with the world. But in reality, that isn't the case. We always support Israel. Your listeners would know at the United Nations, we almost invariably vote as America votes and Israel votes. And on many occasions, we are the only large country in the world or middle-sized country in the world to do that. The other countries are places like Tuvalu or Guatemala. So we have this extraordinary record of partisan support um, for Israel. And the latest action of our government is is really just another another way of of promoting the same position. The argument is that uh, the PA 
uses the money for terrorism. Well, there's no evidence that it does. There's no, there is no evidence that it does, any more than there was evidence that uh, World Vision was using the money for terrorism in Gaza when World Vision was closed down there. It, it's, there is no evidence. And the PA was, was set up following the, the Oslo Agreement in order to, to have a transition government which would ultimately lead towards uh, autonomy for Palestinian people. That hasn't happened. And because it, it hasn't happened, then the, the PA is becoming less and less effective. It, it can't guarantee water, it can't guarantee electricity, because Israel, Israel controls all of those things. And to further weaken the PA, which is what our government's policy is doing, is, in my view at least, and I think in, in APAN's view generally, is actually going against its basic principle that we support both equally. We support a two-state solution. And also the vote in the UN Human Rights Council for an independent inquiry into the, the latest killings in Gaza. We were the only country, I believe, that um, didn't support that. Yes, that, that is correct. Um, th there were some countries that um, were neutral, but we were the only country that opposed it, uh, apart from Israel and, and America, of course. If Israel is so clear that the perpetrators of, the, uh, of this all was, was Hamas, why would they not want an independent inquiry and prove their case? But uh, because they don't want an independent inquiry, it makes it fairly more obvious that there is something to hide. And uh, we in Australia should have supported an independent inquiry. That, that we did not support it is really quite outrageous. And again... It flies in the face of our espoused position of wanting to be fair to both sides. Just going back to Gaza for a moment on the World Vision issue, a person was charged with certain crimes on that. Do you know the outcome of that? I don't know what the latest is, but I do know that it's been never proved. That there's the, the, whether that charge still stands or not, the last time I talked to Tim Costello about it, the, the thing was somewhat in abeyance, but it hasn't been proved because it isn't true. World Vision has audited its accounts as thoroughly as it possibly can, and World Vision is pretty certain that the charges are trumped, trumped up. Uh, it's all gone quiet, and which probably suits the Israeli government, I'd imagine. The shifting of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, that's one area that Australia hasn't as yet followed the U.S.? Be thankful for small mercies, yes, we, we haven't. And if we did, we would then have to be honest and totally abandon our policy of two-state solution because to move the embassy is to agree with Israel that Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel. Although the embassy would, would be in the west of Jerusalem and not the east, nevertheless, Israel's position is that the whole of Jerusalem is the undivided and eternal capital of Israel. And if we moved our embassy, factotum, we, we would be agreeing with that position. So um, I'm very grateful that so far that hasn't happened. And grateful, too, that no other country, I think Honduras or somewhere in, in, in Central America, has agreed to move theirs. But I don't think any other significant country has agreed to move theirs at this stage. Can you explain the difference between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem? Yes. East Jerusalem is the, is the Arab section of Jerusalem, and when the partition occurred, West Jerusalem became part of Israel. East Jerusalem remained part of the Palestinian territories. 
it is vital for Palestine that it remains so because uh, East Jerusalem is, I've forgotten now exactly, but it's something, something between a quarter and a third of the economic strength of Palestine is East Jerusalem, quite apart from the status. And, and of course, in East Jerusalem, uh, uh, the mosque is in East Jerusalem, the second or the third most important holy site of Islam is, is in East Jerusalem. It is incredibly important that East Jerusalem remains part of the, te- the Palestinian territories, but Israel is doing its best through its settlements to make a total ring around East Jerusalem to cut it off from the Palestinian territories. Have you visited there recently to just have a look at those settlements and see how yes, much they're um, strangling? Yes, the last time I was there is three years ago. Um, I'm hoping to be back there next year. The Israeli narrative is that it's not, the problem is not about the settlements because, to quote them, the settlements occupy only 3 or 4% of the Palestinian territory. But it is, it is all about the settlements because in order to, as the settlements are built, then the, Palest- the Israeli presence in the Palestinian territories grows all the time. Palestinian villages that have been there for centuries, particularly Bedouin ones, being knocked over. The connecting uh, infrastructure is a, a, a totally a non-go area for Palestinians. It's apartheid, so that if you're unfortunate enough as a Palestinian to have a house on one side of a, one of these roads and your farm is on the other side, you're not allowed to cross the road to go to your farm. It is totally strangling the, the West Bank, and um, we're, we're really ending up with what looks like bantustans with uh, Palestinian territories in places like Hebron and Ramallah and Nablus and Jericho, etc. Uh, but the whole of the, uh, the Galilee is now the area C of, of the West Bank has, is almost denuded of Palestinian people on the grounds of security. Can you talk a little about the Bedouin people and what they've been suffering over the last years? The Bedouin people are obviously like our Aboriginal people. They are the indigenous people of Palestine. They and their ancestors go back for centuries. Their way of life, uh, again, a little bit like our own indigenous people, uh, it's been graziers who move their flocks and so the be simply because there is not what we would describe as a piece of freehold land which has the Browning name on it or, or your name on it Jan, it doesn't mean that it's not occupied by these people and so to remove the Bedouin people is to remove not simply their rights, it's to, move, to, to remove their whole way of life and to more, more or less to wipe them off quite awful and disastrous and immoral that such a thing should be happening without any any noise really from the international media. Why is there no noise? Well a lot's been said about that in recent times and, and the basic reason is because the pro-Israeli lobby is so intimidating towards media that if you put up a story which in, in, is in any way critical of Israel the, the pushback is enormous and the pain suffered by journalists who run a story sometimes seems not to be worth running the story in the first place. If there's ever a story that appears in uh, the Fairfax papers or it's not likely to appear in, in uh, News Limited, but it might, but it, if, it, if it appears, the pushback is immediate from uh, supporters of Israel. 
And uh, even though the story is true, uh, it becomes very, very difficult, as John Lyons makes clear in his book, Balcony Over Jerusalem. And he explains why the media generally has gone, gone silent on issues that it should be, should be actually very vocal about. And I would imagine that even if a journalist writes a story, there's the sub-editors and the editors who will stand in the way of it anyway. Well, they do. A, a, a senior politician in, in our federal parliament went to Palestine uh, last year. When he came back, uh, he was quite aghast at what he had seen in, in terms... He was actually interested in, in Palestinian farmers. He wrote a piece for News Limited which I've read it, and it's pretty straightforward. He got back this unbelievable letter from, from News Limited saying they would not publish his piece, and didn't he know that all Palestinians were terrorists, etc., etc., etc. It was just the most unbelievable piece of correspondence. But it was an indication of the kind of thing that happens when one tries to put forward a point of view which is unacceptable to supporters of Israel. Just focusing on you for a moment, George, you've got a new career, a new path for a career, I believe, the University of the Third Age. Oh, yes. Well, I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm running a course which actually starts on the 25th of um, July, a week or so's time, and the title is Israel-Palestine from Biblical Times to the Present, two hours each week, and, um, and I think it runs for 10 or 12 weeks. So I'm looking forward, I've enjoyed preparing it and looking forward to delivering it. The scary, scary thing is that it's sort of booked out at the moment, so there's a bit of a waiting list of people who want to come, which is good that people are interested. How far can you go in pushing the, the reality of what it's like for Palestinians um, today? Well, everybody has a, has, a, has a right to an opinion. Nobody has the right to their own facts, and I will do my best to deliver the facts, which are in my view, not controversial. Uh, I think it will be quite interesting for people. Thanks, George. Uh, you, you're very welcome, Jan. And that's Bishop George Browning, who's the current president of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and soon to be a star of University of the Third World in Batemans Bay in New South Wales. Just an announcement which we've been asked to make is that Vic Roads are planning to remove hundreds of trees that are culturally significant for the Jawarung people. In the next 24 hours, they plan to use a tractor to scrape the ground near an 800-year-old sacred tree. This may weaken the tree by damaging its roots. It is unnecessary and could potentially destroy archaeological evidence. They're asking people to come and join the community action planned for 9.30 tomorrow morning. Please come tonight. Tents, fire, water and some food is here already. The site is 2.5 hours from Melbourne. You come along the Western Highway, past Ballarat, Beaufort and Bangor. Turn left at Pope Road just before the highway narrows to just two lanes. Colonial Road is 800 metres further to the west and Arawat is 20 kilometres further west. That's an announcement from Marianne from Cause, Keep Original Root Supporters, a local community group 
working to reduce the damage from this road project. And I'll repeat that message a little later. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonisation, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, Anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org That's info at amelbournebookfair.org Or message us on our Facebook page Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018 A 3CR supporter Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence is back home in Chicago after yet another visit to Afghanistan I asked her first if she keeps tabs on just how many times she's been there. Oh, my goodness. You know, I haven't been very careful about that, but I have been three or four times per year since 2010. So I think um, I may be upwards of 36 to 40 times. And what have you found in your last couple of trips that's maybe different or better or not, not as good as, last, say, last year? Well, certainly in this last trip, I was deeply impressed by the rugged determination of nine men walking from Rashkaragaz city in the Helmand province, 400 miles to Kabul in sandals during Ramadan, you know, when an, an observant Muslim takes no food and no water all the hours between sunrise and sunset. And, and one of the men was blind. And he said he knew he could get help in India for his vision, but getting peace was more important. He lost his his parents and his possibility of ever being betrothed to a woman he loved because he'd become blinded and was considered unable to be a, a, a valuable husband by the girl's father and mother. But nevertheless, he just kept going. And a high school student was one of the people who were part of the marchers. There were young people at junctures all along the way who turned out to greet them, boys beating drums and girls singing anthems. So that's very positive, and I could tell that the young people I know, you know, their eyes are kind of gleaming, saying, well, this is something new. And I really hold out hope for that possibility that a new generation will say, we really want to put this war behind us. But what they can't put behind them is the reality of drought. Something new for me was to live in a place where the the well ran dry. What can you do? Well, we were lucky because the landlord, it was his responsibility, began to dig and after a week and a half dug down deep enough to be able to get water. And neighbors gave a big tank of water. You know, there was a lot of conservation. Uh, recognizing that, you know, a big tank of water doesn't last all that long when you use it for cleaning and for cooking. There was no question of drinking water coming from there. You have to boil your water for 20 minutes before you can touch it. But then I was at the refugee camp, Jan, and those women, when the water ran out, the well went dry. They have a system of valves, a good well that was put in by the Jesuit Refugee Services, 
to serve 200 out of 700 families, so it's something. But it broke down, and the women were panicked. You know, what would they do? So you have those realities of drought, corruption, inefficient management of resources, battered resources because of so much bombing, refugees fleeing, and the populations in these camps are soaring, unemployment. In order to have a lasting peace, jobs and incomes are essential. When you're saying the water table is down, is is that something that's happened before? Is it continually going down, or is it just less rain? You're right. There certainly is less rain and less ice melt coming from the mountains. And yes, it is continually going down. But another reality is that I think one of the reasons the United States wants to keep large bases rent-free outside of Kabul and in other points, eight points around Afghanistan, is because it's possible that someday extractions from Afghanistan's mineral wealth and copper and iron would be very profitable, and Afghanistan might be in so much chaos and such a failed narco state that they wouldn't you know, be able to demand anything of the people that might want to take over that land. Well, suppose this Mezenak copper mine, which extends for miles and miles and miles outside of Kabul and has been on hold, more or less, because the Chinese who are trying to negotiate development of this copper mine have not yet been able to reach an agreement uh, with all of the different groups that would make approvals of this, including the World Bank. But if they do start that mine up, this will lower the water table in Kabul terribly so that it's almost a guarantee that people living in Kabul will be even more prone to disease and their lifespans may be shorter. And what kind of employment can they expect? Does this mean that they'll be the ones who have to go underground and try to help extract the uh, very, very valuable rare earth minerals in some cases and the copper for the Mesonac copper mine. And what has the lack of water done to the availability of growing crops? Well, this is another problem. The easiest crop to grow if you don't have access to uh, you know, deeper water is the poppy. The Taliban make their money from cultivating and selling poppies, so they have told many, many, many farmers, this is what you're going to grow. And the farmers don't have the wherewithal to resist that. And, you know, they also have problems getting other crops to market or getting seeds for other crops or getting water to irrigate other crops. So that's why I speak about a failed narco state. Talk about the, the melting of the, the snow on the, on the mountains. Is it very serious? Well, I think it is. It's, it, it has to do with climate change. And sometimes, you know, you, you can think about the places at the bottom of the mountains as being maybe the most beleaguered. They're affected by drought and the sewage that comes down the mountainside. That's all very, very bad. But because of the shifts in patterns, the, the huge ice blocks that would have once sustained water delivery, in a sense, from up above on the higher levels are now beginning to erode more or less. And so it's related to climate change and it has a disastrous effect. You were there just before the, the Taliban or the, the rebels had a ceasefire during Ramadan. Was there any 
idea that that was going to happen when you were there? I sure didn't know about it. It was, um, I think, we knew that the Afghan government was declaring a ceasefire, and we hoped that the people walking to Kabul would you know, take some credit for that, because that's what they were asking the Taliban and the Afghan government to do, to, you know, to negotiate with each other. Initially, the Taliban had said, no, 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 if you want negotiations, you walk with us to the U.S. embassy. So then the walkers sat in in front of the embassy. I think they may still be holding their sit in. I think the Taliban, partly as a religious gesture, but maybe also to test the waters, said, okay, our fighters will leave their guns at the city borders. And I mean, it's a charming story that the fighters were all over Kabul looking for ice cream chefs, posing for selfies, dancing, hugging. Celebrations for New Year's and for Eid at the end of Ramadan are very spontaneous and very energetic. People just pour out and go up the mountainsides and bring picnics. And, you know, it, it's a very hospitable time that people look forward to. And they, it just happens. It's a, it's a great thing. But then attacks happened in Jalalabad and Nangarhad in the east. The Afghan government has officially declared that their ceasefire is over. And it, there really wasn't a consistent adherence to the ceasefire, even while it was on, amongst the many fighting groups. And, of course, there's no such thing as the Taliban. There's so many, many different fighting groups. Why are there so many? Well, I think that does have to do with corruption. I think that groups will kind of say to themselves, now, which way is the wind blowing? And if it's ISIS that seems to be getting money and weapons, then desperate people who want to feed their families might say, okay, I'm fighting for ISIS. And if it's the troops that are loyal to General Dostum and he gets weapons and can pay a little bit of money, then young men desperate for an income will say, okay, I fight for Dostum or I fight for this other fellow um, who's been very strong amongst the Hazaras. Um, So then you have the Afghan local police, and that's a government-funded militia. Then there are the actual Afghan army fighters, and then there are the regular police people. And so, um, I mean, I, I, I may have mentioned this to you before. I know one young woman who counts in her extended family 46 men who have been killed while working either for the police or a militia or the official army. And now, you know, that's 46 families without an income earner, you know, widows with children perhaps. And, and that, it's a terrible statistic. It's a terrible reality. And I know mothers who weep and say, I won't let my boys go and pick up a gun. I didn't raise them for this. One uh, mother in particular, she was so adamant that uh, her name is Gore Beck. And I met her in a refugee camp, and her life is bitter and hard. But she does not want her sons to bring her money if they earn it by going off to the militaries. And it's money keeping these militia, militaries going that should be going to feed the people, house the people, health for the people. Well, I certainly think that. And I think if U.S. people can't count on our government, as we probably can't, to pay reparations, and even as we rue the fact that major, major companies like General Dynamics and Boeing and Lockheed and Raytheon are profiting every day from this war. We nevertheless have a responsibility. We're little people, and we won't raise tons of money, that's for sure, but we have a responsibility to try 
to pay reparations out of our own pocket. And we can do that by supporting cooperatives that are starting up or supporting the Street Kids School. I'll talk about those in a moment. Can I ask you where the money comes from for the other groups that are fighting the government and fighting the Taliban? Where does the money come for to pay those soldiers if they do get mm-hmm. if they do get paid? Who, who supplies the weapons to them? Well, I think a lot of money comes from the trade in narcotics. Various warlords have control over certain roadways and they can charge tolls or they can get bribes for the movement of things like narcotics and weapons. When there's, you know, a need for a black market supplying weapons to pop up, it will. And a lot of those weapons came from the United States soldiers who didn't keep track of weapons or from people who enlisted in the armies and ran over with a weapon to the black market so it never showed up in the army again. But there's, I'm sure, a brisk trade of weapons that comes in possibly through Pakistan, possibly through Iran. Remember that Pakistan and Iran share a border that sort of encircles Afghanistan. So, you know, if people want to take the risks and get involved in weapon trade, um, I don't think there's a place in the world where you can't get some of these sophisticated weapons or just, you know, but ones that aren't so sophisticated that kill people anyway. Are the drones still causing havoc among the people? Oh, I think so. You know, the uh, Colorado Springs Fort Carson is, is just waiting to send over what they call the Grey Eagle, and that's outfitted not only with surveillance but also with 500-pound bombs and Hellfire missiles. And, you know, when those uh, are fired and when they uh, supposedly hit our target, you know, a high-value target, they often kill other people, destroy land, spread contaminants, and cause people to be so frightened that they pick up and leave and flee to the cities where there's very little hospitality, in a sense, for people who are arriving when the cities are already so beleaguered. And, and, you know, again, I think it's just such a cynical thing that the United States would spend so much money pouring over footage acquired by drones doing surveillance have so little interest in finding out about, you know, what are the conditions on the ground for widows and orphans, and and what about asking the doctors and the nurses, what do they think? What about asking my young Afghan peace volunteers, what do their surveys reveal about how hard, how very, very hard life is for people in Afghanistan today? I mean, there was an article in the New York Times that talked about the wealthy neighborhood, and you know, maybe there are two wealthy neighborhoods. I only know about one. And sure, you know, there's money to be made by people who do quite well in a very small, confined area of Afghanistan. But I sort of, I felt curious about the article. I thought, well, why is that so completely different from my own experience of dust and dirt and mud and pollution and unbreathable air and, uh, you know, people who are just eking out a living, or women who just collapse in your arms and cry. Are we looking at the same country? Because most of Kabul is what I just described. And in the countryside, it can be more desperate. Have you been able to get out into the countryside lately? No, not lately. I have very fond memories of having gone to Bamiyan and Panjshir. But, um, I, you know, sometimes we can take a picnic and go to a park but I have not, uh, it's since a wedding, oh gosh, a year ago now, I haven't been out in anything like countryside. But 
it was wonderful to go to that small village and just walk along. Um, there were grapevines flourishing, and it was just a, a joy to go to a small village. What you said about a wedding there, people must be very fearful of having gatherings and things like that for, for weddings, funerals. Fear right. of the drones coming over. Mm, I think, you know, that certainly is a fearful reality, particularly if there's any sense of Taliban fighters or other fighters and militias who might be targeted. But um, I, it does surprise me that the um, wedding culture is so much a part of the economy. It's one way to move the money, more or less. I find it perplexing. You know, I, to me, a young person pressured by their parents into marriage at a young age is going to be kind of trapped in an economy that just doesn't hold much for them at this point. But I think um, you will find that even in Kabul, parents are, are pressuring the children to marry because they need the dowry and they need the, the, the revenues that the marriage of a young woman to a man will accomplish. And then sometimes families make swaps and they say, well, you know, you get our daughter if we get your son. And, and, and like one of my friends, he was just married. He didn't see his bride until uh, the wedding day when he looked at her veil. There's some kind of quaint customs that are enforced in many parts of Afghanistan. What about the volunteers, the peace volunteers? How are they getting on? Well, I'm very impressed that they've decided that one way to cope with unemployment and the need to have, you know, some means of holding people in the country so that young people won't just long to get out, either through getting a scholarship or taking the terrible risk of becoming a refugee. They decided, even though it's a small beginning to form cooperatives and for years they've talked about the value of a cooperative and they they don't want charity from people like our, our group places for creative nonviolence they'd like us to invest in them getting a cooperative up and running so i'm so proud of them they've got a, a shoemaking cooperative and that's opened and their store is called unique and they've got bright smiles on their faces and they're very excited and then the seamstresses don't want to just have seasonal work making the heavy blankets. They said, let us start a cooperative. We can do this. So we have to, you know, there's a bit of wait and see. Um, but they would like to form a cooperative, have year-round employment, make needed clothing for wintertime and the blankets. And I, I surely hope they'll do well. We can at least buy a portion of the manufacture of the heavy blankets and then the Afghan peace volunteers said they'll help deliver those. What's the background of these young people? Well, most of the ones I knew back in 2010 came from the Hazara Bagan province. Some were Tajik, some were Hazara. We didn't really have any Pashto or Uzbekistani people in the group. And they were all you know, 10, 11, 12. They weren't sure how old they were. And that group has now moved into either going on to university studies. They've all come to Kabul and lived together and uh, Hakeem, their mentor, has helped coach them through studies and through him. And now through some internationals as well, they've had a perspective on the world that I think they might not otherwise have had. You know, they care a lot about the environment and they care a lot about permaculture. An Australian woman, Rosemary Murrow, has spent a month with them um, each of the past three years 
teaching them about permaculture. In Cabo, there's a kind of a an exciting group of young people. They're, they're kind of daring, you know. The girls beg their parents, you know, let us go to this border-free center. We can be part of the education that goes on there, and we can make the blue scarves, and we can help be teachers for the street kids' school. And they are great teachers. I mean, I've been a teacher for most of my life when I've been employed. I can't get over these young people. They are superb teachers. Can you talk a little about Dr. Hakim, his role there, and how long he's been there? He went over to Pakistan when he was a very young doctor in his 30s and did relief work. And uh, he turned 50 this coming year. Well, since 2002, he's been in Afghanistan and he was in Pakistan. He worked on that border area between Quetta in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And then he came over to the Bamyan province and was employed as a medical doctor doing family health practice for a time. And then he said to those employers, you know what, I'd rather just work on my own with trying to help the young people form microloans and enterprises. And so some Singaporean people helped him develop some microloans, and uh, that's around the time when we came along. He was experimenting a lot with different kinds of crops and different kinds of soil nutrients. And uh, people became very, very suspicious. Who is this guy? And they were nervous that he was trying to help Hazara youngsters get to Tajik youngsters. They didn't like that either, some of the mullahs. And so there were threats, and it seemed best for him to leave this very rural area, so much under domination increasingly by the mullahs who tend to be quite conservative. And so he then moved to Kabul, and eventually a group of the Afghan peace volunteers kind of caught up with him. Celebrations planned for his birthday? We can't really predict the future. If civil war breaks out in Afghanistan, I hope that doesn't happen. But if it does, I think people will try to flee to safer places. Hakeem knows that his life is always at risk, but that's also true of any of the people that we know who have been at all prominent in commenting about life in Afghanistan. It's hard to predict the future. I know that the support for some improvements in the refugee camps has been very impressive to me, and that's been forthcoming from a group called JRS, it stands for Jesuit Refugee Services. And, and there are other groups, the, the Norwegians have given support for refugees, and uh, there are some wonderful Australians who keep track of refugees from Afghanistan who go to places like Nauru Island or Christmas Island and try to figure out what's happening to people on the ground in Afghanistan, and they come over, Martin Roish and Bill Glendening, at least twice a year. The Capacitar organization has been very helpful. So, I, you know, it's not as though the Afghan Peace Volunteers are completely alone, but I did notice my last trip that the Mennonite Central Committee couple who had been there have left and gone to Tajikistan, and for some years now the American Friends Service Committee has um, not been present from the United States, they have an office in Afghanistan, and that's closed. But then the Quakers in Australia have been very, very generous in wanting to help support Afghan young people. Why is there talk of civil war at this time? If the Taliban come to the negotiating table and say, look, we're negotiating from a position of strength, and you know we're going to make certain demands, 
out of control over the country and over Kabul, it could be that some groups will say, no, we're not going to submit to that. Maybe Ashraf Ghani would negotiate something, and others would say, well, we're, we're not part of it. Mafik is the Hazara warlord, and Dostum is another warlord, very, very strong in the rest of the country. And there will be people who are battling over, you know, shortages of water and control of land and what's going to be grown on the land. And some of that might get played out in cities like Kabul. And you've been listening to Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, based in Chicago. Speaking now with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy about issues relating to Zimbabwe and the Philippines. Beginning with Zimbabwe, Peter, 30th of July, described as the first election without former leader Robert Mugabe's participation. How accurate is that statement? I think it's about 50% true. Unfortunately, because of the way he he resigned uh, as president last November, he was able to hold on to all of his assets pretty well. He stayed in the country except for a visit to Singapore recently and uh, he's uh, been able to finance a new political party and create quite a bit of havoc inside ZANU-PF. He's also been able to, I think, uh, engage with several other opposition parties to try to you know, have a role in isolating uh, the current president, Manangagwa, and uh, defeat them or make it very difficult for them at the election on July 30. What's the new party? National Patriotic Front, it's called. You know, the, the thing here is I, I doubt it's got many voters, but it's got money and uh, perhaps it can persuade people or intimidate people or buy people. And that would be the methods being used, I think, with a view to making sure that the current president doesn't get an outright majority in the first round of the presidential, therefore forcing a runoff, which, would, if it happened, it would be on September 8. What about his wife, Grace? What's she been up to? She's sort of been a bit low-key, but uh, there's definitely a... uh, demand being placed on Nelson Chamisa, who's the leader of MDC Alliance, to provide parliamentary seats for National Patriotic Front and in return for their votes for him as president that Grace Mugabe would become the vice president. So there's a lot of controversy about this, but I think that's basically the terms of the deal that's been tried on. Who is the challenger, Nelson? Nelson Chamisa is a lawyer... He was a founding member of MDC as a leader of a student organisation back in uh, 1999. So he was quite young then and he came to Australia as a part of a MDC delegation in 2001. So several people in different parts of Australia actually met him, but he hasn't uh, been back since then. He's uh, played a role in the Government of National Unity in 2009 to 2013. And I think it could characterise him as sort of emulating ZANU-PF classic uh, political practices in, in this last, say, 10 years or so. You know, there's a lot of people in Zimbabwe who are very, very sceptical that he can play a positive role, but uh, he is popular, you know, so it's hard to... <laughs> it's really quite hard to tell what will happen. He pretty well seized control of MDC uh, after the death of Morgan Chungurai, 
uh, in February this year in a quite unconstitutional way, and he deployed violence several times against the vice president of MDC, a woman called Takazani Kupi. You know, it's not been a very uh, edifying year, 2018, in terms of Nelson Chamisa's actual performance. Is Seke Holland right out of politics? Well, she's definitely stepped away from formal political party affiliations. So she seems to be playing a role of uh, honest broker between all people, all different organisations, and regularly everybody's coming to her house to talk about what's going on. So, in fact, she's pretty well informed and she's also you know, very much encouraging everybody to try to desist from the old-style culture of uh, politics in Zimbabwe, which is full of uh, corruption and intimidation, and try to stick to the rule of law and establish a, a, an inclusive way for the community to take a hand in the next phase of the country's history because, you know, the, the country is truly on its knees. It's a disastrous economic and social situation. And uh, if there's not a uh, credible outcome of this election, it will actually get worse, not better. So I think she's, she's very, very focused on that idea of a transition to a much more reliable democratic framework for the country. Do we also need to look at the past history of the, the current president, Emerson Managuagua? In 75, when he took over last year with the help of the military, but he has got that history, hasn't he? Yes, he's also, you know, been a close associate of Robert Mugabe for decades and decades. He was a security minister. He wasn't really a soldier, but uh, he was in the intelligence and security side of things for Zanu PF. And uh, he's uh, really evading the core criticism of him, which was his role in the massacre of people in Midlands and Matabele land in the period 1981 to 1989. You know, it's, it's uh, a bit uncertain how many people were killed, but at least 20,000 and maybe 40,000 people were killed and in a political repression of the other main Liberation Party, ZAPU. So, um, yeah, he's, in his public statements, said that other people were in command and he wasn't, but he was a central you know, security person, so it's hard to quite accept what he said. But... Uh, there's clearly an, a lot of people still around in the government who were involved in the Kukuruhundi massacres and uh, uh, he's not the only one. These are the things that worry everybody about how can somebody with that history uh, and in general uh, backing Mugabe through all of the disastrous moves he's made make a difference. So, uh, yes, on the other hand, there's the, the palpable evidence that he has made some sort of a difference by making sure that Grace Mugabe didn't take over the presidency last year and, uh, and himself becoming the president. And certainly the atmosphere uh, and daily practices in the country are far more agreeable to people than they were under Mugabe. You know, he's got that on his side. So this is what's causing the, the sort of uh, mixture of uh, really cynical uh, expectations on the one hand and some hope because everyone actually needs some hope. So he's... He is providing some hope. And the fact that he's got the military on his side? Yes, well, I think uh, that's obviously a very important thing for the stability of the country. Once the military plays an open hand in politics, 
it's hard to stop them doing it a second time, isn't it? So uh, I think uh, Manangagwa made sort of smart moves by appointing all the senior military figures in November last year who took part in the change of power to political roles and, and they're now civilians. So there's a whole new military command which people say is far more professional and in fact many of them come from the Zipra side of the liberation struggle, that is the military wing of Zapu. This is something that would never have happened under Mugabe, for instance. So uh, there's a bit of a change there which is again, for those watching it, a sign of hope rather than and no worry. However, it's right to, to worry that, you know, given the whole of Africa, that uh, if things go from bad to worse after this election, that it will just become an outright military government and this will only be worse for everybody. The issue of free and fair elections, they're saying that they've invited Western observers for the first time in two decades, but surely it's not just the election day activities which constitutes whether there are free and fair elections. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. And uh, it's, it's uh, I think the last lot of international observers was 2002, so it's not quite two decades. And uh, we had, I think, Julie Bishop and Kevin Rudd took part in that. The um, international community, including the Commonwealth, are sending a lot of observers, but they've only just arrived in the last week, the bulk of them. And... Uh, I think that's it's too late because the electoral role has been a huge focus of concern, and rightly so. And the, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission has been compiling and will use a new electoral role. So it's you know the last one was totally corrupted. That's true, but unfortunately, because of the way the ZEC conducted this process, the opposition parties aren't, aren't are able to feel confident that this electoral role is accurate either. The uh, printing of the ballot papers was controversial and remains controversial. So the suspicion that ballot papers have already been filled in and ballot boxes already stuffed and waiting somewhere, it's it's out there. And uh, as well as that, the media uh, should, of course, be fair, especially the public sector media. And uh, unfortunately, the bias for Zoni PF which has been characteristic for decades and decades, uh, has continued through this period. And there's been a few manoeuvres about that. So the uh, government television and newspapers have said that they're, they're providing uh, advertising space for the opposition, but the price for the advertising is very high. And so, in fact, you know, it's been really unbalanced. So that's continuing a, a uh, unfairness in the electoral system, which will play you know, it will play a role in the outcome. What about the millions who live outside the country? That's another factor that um, there was a hope that uh, the diaspora vote, which, you know, would be like another five million, maybe as many outside as inside voting. I think they're saying right now there's about 5.7 million registered voters inside the country. Anyway, the High Court last week, I think, finally ruled on a case that... Uh, the uh, diaspora won't be getting a vote. This seems to be unconstitutional, but then if the High Court said that, it's hard to go past it. So, again, there's a sort of a roadblock there for the aspirations of the Zimbabwean people who um, have been forced to leave their country but are very, very concerned, of course, about the future of their country. What about those who can afford to move back home just for the vote? I'd imagine 
there wouldn't be too many of those. I'm not hearing about it. So I think to, to be on the voter roll, uh, you would have had to have already gone back to Zimbabwe and registered in a place where your residency is registered. So the people outside may well still have an old metal ID card. Uh, it's not really a card, but a disc which shows their uh, registration, their residency, and that could have been used as the basis for getting on the electoral roll and therefore they could fly back and, and vote or drive back from South Africa and vote. But I doubt that uh, many people have been able to do that. The election on the 30th of July, is it only for president? No, it's for the presidency, for the uh, Senate, for the National Assembly and for local government as well. So all of the provincial governors will be elected and so on. So it's a really big electoral exercise. How important is the president in the system? Well, it's an executive presidency, so the president is a very significant uh, role in the constitution. And uh, because of the way Mugabe exercised the presidency, you know, there's a lot of extra powers that, you know, we wouldn't really want to see, say, in, in a Western democracy. But um, the uh, National Assembly is also important because in the end it has to pass the legislation. The expectation is now that there's been so much chaos in ZANU-PF and in NDC Alliance that there's really a large number of candidates running for every constituency and um, it's not clear that, you know, independents, say, who uh, were cheated out of uh, getting pre-selection for their parties or who, yeah, who were just ignored by the main parties but who have got very credible profile with the people, there's no, no ruling out that many of them will get elected actually. So it's uh, probably going to be a very uh, new type of National Assembly, not characterised by simply dominated by ZANU-PF or MDC, uh, and in this case MDC Alliance. And it's really unclear what will happen in the presidential election as well. So there's uh, so many divisions in the opposition and in ZANU-PF and also the Mugabe factor at play. So um, I think the expectation is that Manangagwa would win the election for president but that ZANU-PF wouldn't win the National Assembly. Is that the feeling you get when you speak to your friends in Zimbabwe? That's right. That's the impression I'm getting. It's hard to pick it from afar, but you have to look at the rallies that have been held where there have been massive rallies associated with Nelson Chamisa, but the biggest rallies that he's had actually have been protests against the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission. So, you know... It's uh, mixing up two themes there, that one that the people really want a clean election and therefore the pressure on the ZEC is uh, very important and might be the biggest motive for attending the rally, but the rally would also be for those who want Chamisa to be the president. So it's, it's getting a bit hard to pick what's going on there. On the other hand, some of the ZANU-PF rallies have been incredibly small and um, controversial. So especially recently there was one held where Manangagwa was uh, to address and he was speaking and thousands of, I think maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, people were just walking away and the military moved in and uh, forced them to stay, you know, using violence to force people to stay. So this didn't look very good on uh, camera, which, uh, you know, images of course went out. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's that's an indicator that Manangagwa really can't spark the imagination of the people. 
but you know, it's uh, only less than two weeks now. So we'll yeah, two weeks from today. So we'll see uh, just what uh, happens soon enough. I expect this next two weeks to be you know very intense, but many of the statements being made in public, even in the media, are unsourced and uh, not reliable. So it's you know a matter of really being uh, thoughtful when you read the media uh, coming out of Zimbabwe now. Halfway away from the world of Zimbabwe is the Philippines. Dietre and Peace Talks, he's agreed to or he's formalised talks with local groups, but he won't talk to the former national guerrilla movement. So what's going on? Oh, well, I think this is just a sort of playing around, trying to demonstrate that... uh, Duterte trying to demonstrate that he really wants peace when he doesn't, when he's really stopping the process. So none of these local dialogues will actually come to anything. And uh, the local political leaderships, you know, of the progressive movements are completely opposed to the idea that somehow or other the problems of the country can be resolved at that level. And uh, they are calling at public meetings and some rallies for the formal peace talks with the National Democratic Front to start again. So, uh, yeah, I think it's like a little bit of a cat-and-mouse game and uh, there's sort of a big changes in the air and I think Billy Duterte is, is saying he's uh, not interested anymore in uh, negotiating with the NDF because he's going to change the constitution of uh, the country and uh, restructure it and he will claim it restructured in a way which will solve the problems that have generated the long-standing armed conflicts in the country. That's not very credible, and I think we'll see a huge reaction to that uh, next uh, yeah, next Monday, uh, July 23, will be Duterte's State of the Nation address in Manila, and uh, it's a formal speech to the Congress, and uh, there's uh, typically a very, very large protest rally outside the Congress and uh, there'll be rallies all around the country. So uh, I think come next Monday evening, we will see just how Duterte's actual choice here about a new constitution and uh, rejecting the peace process for now um, really plays out. Has he still got his war on the poor? Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's just a never-ending, the uh, shooting of... Uh, poor people in uh, urban areas allegedly because they're involved with the drug trade and um, the level of uh, shootings of political activists that have got nothing to do with the drug trade uh, is also escalating and as well as that you know arrests of people in churches arrests of people who are, who are simply exercising their uh, democratic rights to consider better policies for the country and hold meetings or rallies to promote these policies. So um, it's really a distressing time in Mindanao itself but all over the country because of this violence that's uh, being perpetrated really and and clearly by the military on behalf of the Duterte government. So this uh, last three months have witnessed the the shootings of three Catholic priests in, in their churches, even in the mass. It's really very confronting to the mainstream of the Filipino people that this is happening in the Catholic Bishops' Conference, which is pretty pliable and doesn't really 
look for a confrontation with the government has has taken a firmer and firmer stand against the war on drugs, especially the killing of their own priests. And uh, Duterte has escalated this by you know making a grand denunciation of Christianity and, and God and the Pope. So uh, this you know has shifted the the terrain a fair bit because. That was, I think, quite deeply offensive to millions and millions of Filipinos who are quite devout Catholics and, and shifted, shifted the sort of uh, political conflict sort of outside of the, the, the normal realm of politics into, into culture and social values itself. So I think Duterte is probably doing himself more and more damage and this is reflected to, the, to some extent in his declining popularity ratings, which are still high by our standards, but they, they've fallen... 10% in just a month or so. Why has he turned against the Catholic Church? This is his, uh, his particular persona, I think. He, he's been attacked by the Church over the decades, but not, not very often, but occasionally, and he's always come back very savagely at them. So on some, some issues, you know, you'd sympathise with him in that you know, he's very forthright about the need for birth control or family planning, and the Catholic Church is quite bad on that. But when it comes to social justice, the mining industry, actual killing of people, um, he's, he's way out of uh, right field. <clears throat> and um, when the Catholic Church criticises him on that level, he lashes back. It's uh, you know very, very negative, I think, both for himself politically and uh, uh, very disturbing, I think, for the country to see their leader behaving like that. With the military crackdown on the people... Is it the, the mining interests in the background? I think it's you know much bigger than that. Clearly, mining companies have, have very direct relations with the military, and uh, so the military, the national police, and then forms of security guard, private companies, all play a role in uh, in uh, asserting uh, mining company interests against uh, local landowners. And, um, and killing people and uh, de- demolishing their homes and driving them off their lands and uh, so on, destroying their economic base. That's all part of what happens. But uh, I think that the bigger picture is that the United States has very much wants the Philippines to play a strong role in uh, confronting China. And uh, Duterte has been a problem in that regard since his inauguration, but especially since the Marawi city fighting in Mindanao last year. He's much more clearly fallen into line with the U.S. Uh, policy. And um, U.S. would be and has been for a long, long time involved in their main counterinsurgency strategies in the country, which involves the assassination of lots of civilian political activists as well as the war against the New People's Army and the various Moro Islamic forces or Muslim forces. Just staying with the Catholic Church for a moment, Sister Pat Fox, the Philippines Justice Department overturned an order for the deportation of her, determining that the cancellation of her missionary visa was without legal base. I've covered this issue with May Kosakis and yourself. And just imagine that Duterte wouldn't have been very pleased that the department overturned his ruling. Yes, that's right. But uh, the fact that the department did do that showed that, and he didn't react further, shows that I think he's he's trying to pull back a bit from really another very disastrous uh, decision of his. 
So uh, there's even speculation that in the end, Sister Fox may be even given honorary Filipino citizenship as a sort of, you know, way to completely neutralise the negative uh, impact of uh, Duterte's attempt to deport her. But she's really not out of the woods yet. So the cancellation of her missionary visa was one issue, but a, a simple direct order for her deportation is another issue, and that's still going through a legal process. So it's uh, still an option for Duterte somehow or other to insist on that happening, but uh, I think it's already a sign that, you know, that when the Justice Department did overturn that cancellation, that perhaps there's, there's going to be... Uh, quite a reversal happen and maybe Sister Patricia Fox's case will be quite a victory in the end. But uh, I wouldn't count any chickens before they hatch and I'm sure Sister Pat is, uh, you know, being very calm and uh, patient, trying to carry on her normal normal work um, while this next legal uh, process is worked through. And I'll be catching up with Peter Murphy on the program next week to find out what Duterte had to say about the constitutional change. Next, an analysis of two countries by American political activist Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink and the fair trade advocacy group Global Exchange. The two countries are Saudi Arabia, joined at the hip to the US and Israel, and the second, Iran, a country under repressive US sanctions and continually threatened by both the US, Israel and Saudi Arabia. We look at the differences for an understanding of why such a stark difference in treatment. First, Medea, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, a nation founded in 1932. What was behind that beginning? There was the Al Saud family that had been making an alliance with a Imam Wahhab, who was a very strict traditional interpretation of Islam, and the two families had gotten together, and they used the religion as an excuse to conquer most of the Arabian Peninsula, and when they had succeeded in doing that, they declared the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in 1932. And how has it developed and held on to power in that country for so long? It's quite remarkable to think that one family, the Saud family, has been reigning over that area for all of these years, from the grandfather to the sons going along each son and now to the grandson. You have a strong grip that the Saudi royal family has kept on power, and then you have the religious clerics who also have their own power fiefdom and are able to uh, use the tremendous oil wealth, once oil was discovered in 1938, to placate the population by providing enough of a safety net and a subsidies of some of the basic goods so that people are relatively content, and then you have about 10 million people who've been brought in to do the dirty work, the construction, the cleaning of people's houses. So the Saudis, about 20 million of them, if you don't want to contest the power of the royal family and you're not a Shia minority and you are not a, a an atheist or a 
a liberal blogger, you uh, can live decently. But if anybody tries to contest the power or the repression of the government, uh, they will find themselves either hung or in prison for long sentences or in exile. What's the treatment of those guest workers? I suppose you'd call them guest workers, would you? Well, yes, it's quite a misnomer, but the guest workers, some of them, are treated like virtual slaves. They come over with a sponsor, and that sponsor then has control over the person. If the person is unhappy with the sponsor, they can't just leave. In fact, the sponsor has to sign off if they want to leave the country. So it is a kind of modern-day indentured servitude that about 10 million people live under. Now, today, with the attempts to get more women into the economy, reduce the level of unemployment, the government is trying to do away with a lot of the guest workers and send them back home. That includes the drivers that have been driving around the Saudi women until they were just given the right to drive. But even so, the employers prefer to hire the foreign workers because they can pay them much less and work them much, much harder. Tell me about what life must be like for a Saudi woman. They just did get the right to drive in, on January 24th, which is a great improvement given they were the only country in the world where women haven't been allowed to drive. But they still live under a very oppressive guardianship system in which a male, either the father, later on in life perhaps a husband, even a son, has control over the major issues of a woman's life. If she gets married, who she gets married to, if she can travel. Oftentimes the employers want the guardian to sign off. So the women who have been fighting for the right to drive, unfortunately, some of them have been rounded up and thrown into prison recently. And the message is that the Saudi ruling powers will be the ones to determine the pace of change, not the women themselves. How successful has the family and the, the clerics been in expanding their form of Islam around the world? The money that they have been making from selling the vast quantities of oil have been in part used to create mosques and pay for teachers and schools in many parts of the world, throughout the Middle East, in places like Pakistan, Indonesia, Northern Africa, even in parts of Europe like in the Netherlands. You find mosques that are built and managed by the Saudis. The kind of uh, version, and some would say perversion, of Islam that they have been spreading has become the basis for extremist groups from al-Qaeda to ISIS. And let's not forget that 15 of the 19 hijackers that attacked the United States back on 9-11-2001 were also coming from Saudi Arabia. Is there such a thing as private enterprise and unions, or is that a Western phenomenon? There is certainly private enterprise, but the union now is a government union. People have been fighting for independent unions for quite a long time, but they get repressed by the government. Looking at the current 
Crown Prince. Tell us about him. He was 30 years old uh, two years ago when his father, King Salman, made him the head of both the entire economy as well as the military. And what he did with the military was uh, get involved in the civil war in neighboring Yemen, and this has been going on now for three years, and the Yemeni people have suffered so much from this in that it's become the largest catastrophe in the world right now, thanks to the crown prince, who doesn't want to negotiate a solution with the United Nations because he would feel humiliated by that. He wants to beat the uh, local group, the Houthis. And in the meantime, in terms of the economy, he has come out with this Vision 2030 his view of how to modernize the Saudi economy. And certainly there are parts of that that are positive, like making more employment opportunities for Saudis, trying to diversify away from oil. But this has been tried many times in Saudi Arabia in the past, so it's not clear whether the crown prince will be able to move the tremendous dependence that that nation has on oil. Would you say he's no better or no worse than his predecessors? I would say he is worse than his predecessors because while he has paid many high-powered PR firms to portray him as a reformer and he's used the granting of the right to drive for women and the opening of movie theaters as the examples of how he is transforming the country, he is also consolidating tremendous authoritarian power. He took between 200 and 300 of the wealthiest people in Saudi Arabia, locked them up in a a luxurious Ritz-Carlton hotel, but shook them down for billions of dollars and humiliated them. This was part of his way of saying uh, that he was the supreme leader. So I think he's got way too much power for himself. We already see how he's used that power to create so much death and suffering in Yemen. Uh, So I don't think uh, giving inordinate amount of authority to a 32-year-old is a good thing for any country. The conflict he's involved with in Yemen, is that a religious context or is it more than that? It's political. There was a group, the Houthis, that are somewhat uh, part of the Shia interpretation of Islam and they rose up against the government. The government of uh, Hadi went to Saudi Arabia and asked Saudi Arabia to get involved. Saudi Arabia should not have gotten involved in an internal affairs in Yemen, but did because they were worried that the Houthis would align themselves with Iran and give Iran more power at their doorstep. And so that's the reason they got involved. And as a consequence, Uh, The Iranians are somewhat involved, but not nearly to the extent of the Saudis, and it has been shown by all of the international organizations that by far the majority of the attacks on civilians, schools, clinics, funerals, weddings, neighborhoods, markets, have been done by the bombing campaign led by Saudi Arabia and supported by the United States, not only with the planes and the bombs themselves, but by refueling the planes in the air, providing logistical support, as well as diplomatic cover in the United Nations. And blockades? 
the Saudis have been blockading the port of Hudaydah and now are trying to physically go in and take over that port. I said that there was already a humanitarian catastrophe, but the UN is warning that if the Saudis are successful with the Emiratis in doing that, it will really uh, ramp up the suffering of the already impoverished Yemeni people. And so there is a flurry of activity at the United Nations now to try to force a ceasefire and to say that that port would be under uh, UN control. And a number of those people who are suffering in Yemen have actually come from Somalia, so it's double jeopardy for them. Yes, imagine the poor Somalis who fled to Yemen to find themselves in the midst of all of this fighting and bombing in Yemen. Well, let's talk about Iran now, a very different recent history to that of Saudi Arabia. Yes, Iran has a much, much longer history that goes back over 2,500 years and has had periods in its history where it was an empire controlling vast swaths of land or it uh, was itself controlled by other empires, but through the ups and downs developed a extremely brilliant culture, literature, architecture, all kinds of contributions to the human society in general. And we continue to see to this day how much the Iranian people treasure their history, their customs, their poetry, and their food. So, uh, yes, it's got a, a much richer history, certainly, than Saudi Arabia. Go back to the Islamic Revolution. What precipitated that? The time during the Shah in the 1900s was marked by the Shah giving away the most precious resources of the country to foreigners. The oil was in the hands of a British company, and when the Iranians voted to bring in a prime minister who would nationalize the oil, the U.K. and the U.S. CIA got involved to overthrow him. That was Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953. They reinstalled the Shah, who was even more brutal than before, and so there was a lot of organizing to get rid of the Shah. This finally happened in 1979. There was a lot of jockeying for power over who would take control. There were socialists, Marxists, leftists who had been trying to topple the Shah, but the most powerful were the clerics, and in the end, they were the ones that got control, declared it an Islamic state, and the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in exile, came back to rule, and there has only been one other Ayatollah since that to this date. You've visited Iran a number of times. How would you judge how the, the country operates on the social and economic level? Well, I said that in Saudi Arabia, if one did not buck the government, um, you could have a pretty decent life. The same is true of Iran. Most Iranians are not involved in politics. They just want to live their lives. There's tremendous educational opportunities for Iranians, including women. The majority of the students at the universities are women. But if you are a minority religious group like the Baha'i, if you're an ethnic minority, if you have um, been involved in, in drugs, you will find extremely harsh 
retaliation from the government. So there is a lack of many basic freedoms of speech, association, press. On the other hand, unlike Saudi Arabia that has no pretense of any kind of national elections, there are elections in Iran, and it does matter who wins. If it's a more conservative faction like Ahmadinejad or it's a more reformist like the present government of Rouhani, it not only matters for people inside the country, it matters for Iranian relations with the outside world. So it has quite a dynamic political buying for power that is seen in both presidential elections as well as elections on the more local level. Talk about some of those problems, independent trade unions. There's a, a great number of people who are very fearful of what happens to people who try to be independent in the trade union area, and also public executions. Yes, there have been restrictions on trade unions, although there are a lot of wildcat strikes that happen pretty regularly. And right now, when the economic situation is so bad, as a result of the tightening of the noose by the United States with its sanctions, as well as corruption in the Iranian government itself, people are going out on strike, and there is a lot of um, uh, labor unrest. But in terms of the ability of people to, you talked about the executions, there previously was the death penalty for people involved, even in, with small amounts of drugs. The Iranians are, have promised to change that now, and it looks like that is changing significantly. But they still make uh, use of the death penalty, and it is unfortunate that the Iranian government continues to put people to death, oftentimes for nonviolent crimes. There was a brutal... Secret Service organization through the government under the Shahs. Some people say that that's still there in, a, in degrees. Well, it's a different form, and depending on who is in power and how much the conservatives have the morality police going around to enforce the laws, it's less so when there's somebody like Rouhani in power. But given that the outside world, particularly in the United States, is trying to foment uprisings in Iran. That causes the government to crack down more on people. And so, yes, there are a lot of secret police as well as non-secret police that try to keep control over the population. Sanctions have been in place for many decades, haven't they? In one form or another, the sanctions have been in place since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. But it's really more was in uh, the uh, 2010 that there was a agreement internationally to tighten the sanctions as part of bringing Iran to the table to negotiate around the nuclear deal. And that has really affected the economy. Once the deal was signed in March of 2015, a number of those sanctions were lifted, and there was a short-term improvement in the economy. But then as soon as Donald Trump was elected and it was clear he was going to take the U.S. out of the nuclear deal, the companies in the West started pulling out, and uh, the sanctions have been tightened. And those sanctions are not only against U.S. companies that might want to trade with Iran, 
but the U.S. is trying to tell the rest of the world they can't trade with Iran. And the secondary sanctions are already affecting many European countries, India, uh, that had deals going with Iran. And the U.S. is also trying to tell the buyers of Iranian oil to stop buying the oil. And uh, the uh, Iranian economy is very dependent on China and with the U.S. efforts to restrict trade with other countries, Iran will only become more dependent on China, but on very unfavorable terms of trade. So the Iranian currency, the real, has lost uh, about 50% of its value in the last six months, and people are really having a very difficult time. Turn to the different treatment of the two countries by the U.S., particularly in countries in the West. There are similarities, but there's many differences Explain to me why one country is treated so differently to the other. Well, yes, I would say that in just about every way, Saudi Arabia is more repressive than Iran, and yet the U.S. has this cozy relationship where Saudi Arabia is the number one weapons purchaser from the United States, and yet Iran is treated as a pariah. I think one main reason for this is Israel since Israel and Iran have been enemies since the time of the Islamic Republic, uh, the uh, tight relationship of the U.S. government with Israel uh, has put the U.S. and Iran on this collision course. Can you explain why Israel acts like this towards Iran? Well, when the Shah was overthrown in 1979, the new government that took power was not only anti-Shah, but anti-American and anti-Israel, and was pro-Palestinian. And over the years, Israel has tried to find covert ways of fomenting discontent inside Iran, wanting to overthrow the Iranian government, pressuring the U.S. to not negotiate the Iran nuclear deal, but instead bomb Iran's nuclear facilities. It's important to point out that Israel itself has lied about its nuclear weapons program since it started in the 1960s. And while Iran right now has zero nuclear weapons, Israel has over 200 and has never signed on to the Non-Proliferation Treaty or allowed any inspections, uh, whereas Iran did open up itself to the most intrusive inspection regime that has ever been negotiated. Unfortunately, the United States under Donald Trump has even closer relationship with Israel and uh, therefore is siding with Israel in its pending war with Iran. And I say pending because in some ways Israel is already on the war path with Iran. We see Israel bombing Iranian sites inside of Syria. Uh, We see that Israel has killed Iranian scientists, five different Iranian nuclear scientists over the years. So Israel is trying to drag the United States into a war uh, with Iran. Does oil come into the picture, or does both the countries have oil, Iran and Saudi Arabia? Well, Saudi Arabia has a larger reserve of oil. Uh, The U.S. certainly would like to get control over Iran's oil and be able to decide what level of production Iran would uh, be able to have. But it really, at this point, is also, in terms of Donald Trump, 
part of trying to undo the legacy of Barack Obama, whether it was Obama's Health Care Act or Obama's adherence to the Paris Climate Talks or Obama's bettering of relations with Cuba and then signing the nuclear deal with Iran, all of these are things that Trump is trying to undo. So there's also that personal vendetta that uh, Donald Trump has against the last administration. Does geography come into it with the closeness of Iran to perhaps China and Russia? So Iran has a a very close relationship with China and uh, to some extent with Russia as well, although Russia has more recently uh, been having meetings with the Israelis too. I think on one level, Russia is trying to avoid a war uh, with Iran, trying to find a solution to the Israelis' concern about having Iranians inside Syria, close to the Israeli border. So uh, I would imagine that when Donald Trump meets with Vladimir Putin in the summit that they're going to have, that certainly Iran will be one of the issues under discussion. Can you have a crystal ball for the near future? I'm an optimist, so (laughs) my crystal ball is one where the Europeans, the Chinese and Russians come together and find a way to make sure that the Iranian economy receives some kind of boost and does not fall prey to the strangulation by the United States, and that Iran therefore stays within the nuclear deal, that the cooler heads inside the Pentagon in the United States uh, try to calm down the hawks like John Bolton and say that a war with Iran would actually be catastrophic uh, for the U.S. as well, uh, given all the military bases that the U.S. has surrounding Iran and how Iran could attack those bases, how Iranian allies and Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Shia militias in Iraq could also get involved and make things very miserable for the U.S., how they could bog down the U.S. in Afghanistan, that hopefully all of those warnings will be enough to stop the U.S. from foolishly getting involved in another military intervention in the Middle East. Finally, Medea, you've been to Iran a number of times. You've kept contact with people there, particularly women? Yes. Yes, I have, and all kinds of women. Women in academia, women business leaders. I've met twice with a wonderful association of business owners, and it's just marvelous to see the kind of education and skills that they have running their own companies some of them quite large, running their own farms, being uh, petrochemical engineers or architects of large investment in infrastructure projects. So I've met with many different kinds of Iranians, women, including young women, who are very unhappy with the government, would like to live in a secular society, don't want anyone telling them how they should dress and how they should act. So there's all different kinds of Iranian women, but I would say anybody who thinks that Iranian women are oppressed and sitting in their homes waiting for uh, men to allow them to 
uh, live their lives are very mistaken that Iranian women, yes, they have to wear a headscarf, uh, but they are very involved in every aspect of Iranian society. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And that was Medea Benjamin, the co-founder of Code Pink in the U.S. That's all I have for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4. Stay tuned in about one minute's time for Done By Law. Bye for now.